It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, you can then type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'd like to welcome to the show Cheryl Blackman. She's the Director of Museums and Heritage Services for the City of Toronto, along with Umberine Inayat. She's the Programming Supervisor. And they're here to talk to you about uh, Toronto History Museums launching a virtual awakenings program. And it's uh, they developed an awakenings task force... And it was formed to develop art projects within the Toronto History Museums that operate under the principles of anti-oppression, anti-colonialism, sustainability, and uh, advocacy and storytelling. So welcome, Cheryl and Umberine. Thanks for having us here, David. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you both here. So can you tell us uh, a little bit more about why the task force was developed? Yes. Um, so, David, you know, the task force was really developed because at the Toronto History Museums, we've been seeing what everyone else in the world has been seeing, that there is there is this very deep need for us to tell stories that amplify the voices of Black, Indigenous and people of colour communities. And during COVID-19, there, there just seemed like uh, no better time to get people together and really begin to develop work that was telling these stories. So, you know, it was our pleasure to be able to reach out to amazing people in the community like Ashley Mackenzie Barnes, a curator, mm. Dr. Julie Nagam, um, Julian Christian Lutz, PKA Director X, uh, Mark V. Campbell from UFT, Natasha Henry, who's the president of the Ontario Black History Society, Roger Mu King, who you might know from the Food Network, and Wayne Mangesha from uh, the Soul Pipper Theatre Company. She's the artistic director there to really begin to talk about what would it look like if we actually leaned into uh, storytelling through the voice of community. So Awakenings uh, Task Force and Awakenings was, was basically born from that uh, set of conversations. And when did these conversations get underway? So the conversations really got underway this summer. Um, and I think Umberine can tell a great story about just the way that we were, as City of Toronto staff, working together to think about how we serve Torontonians and really the ideas that were being percolated and exchanged through those um, conversations. And maybe if it's okay, um, Umberine can jump in and talk a little bit about that, that process of developing the idea. Absolutely. Sure. So thanks, Cheryl. Um, and thank you, David. Thank you for having me. So yeah, what Cheryl and I were thinking about, you know, return to operations. I actually got put on her team this summer, luckily, um, as we were all thinking about how to support uh, different divisions in the city. And Cheryl and I started to really reflect on, well, what are we, we returning to? And Cheryl had this really amazing work plan that had already been quite uh, progressive and revolutionary, really talking about, you know, BIPOC voices and how we needed to make a space for, you know, new stories to be told. And we really decided to create, you know, a new vision, a new concept, a new philosophy, which was awakenings. And the reason for it is to really respond, you know, to what's happening in COVID-19, you know, to really hold uh, space for truth. And that truth is that we are vulnerable. We are, we do affect each other. 
you know, from as close as six feet to all the way around mm. the world. We all need each other, as we can see, being isolated at home, but yet we can all destroy each other. And nowhere is that seen more than these colonial historical narratives that we have tied to our 10 heritage sites. And so with Awakenings, we're actually creating space for these truths. And these truths that need to be seen are anti-colonial, anti-racist, anti-oppressive. And there's no one better to tell or illustrate these truths than artists. So we went and invited BIPOC artists to really reimagine history and hold space for these truths that you don't normally get to see. And so through the Awakenings program, we've brought in over 80% of BIPOC artists to come and retell and reimagine and also re-engage people to truths they've never seen before. And and how did the, the BIPOC artists that you brought in re- react to this idea? They were really, I have to say, surprised. I think mm-hmm. they were surprised that the city of Toronto was brave and bold enough to create space. Mm. You know, I I really do believe that we're going through like a varying levels of grieving, you know, through 2020. There's so much stuff that everyone's carrying, you know, Mm. and I think that we arrived at the scene at the right time. Mm. So a lot of artists had said to us that, you know, this provided an outlet for them, you know, for almost like a therapeutic outlet that they wanted to release, you know, what was going on with Black Lives Matters. You know, artists were saying, do we protest in the streets? You know, do we go and make work? How do we contribute? You know, we were working with two amazing Indigenous artists, uh, John Elliott, he's a Mohawk artist, and Alex Lazarowicz, who's a Cree artist. Mm. And they jumped on the opportunity to say, you know, this is my um, platform that I've never had before to shed light on this pain that I've been carrying. So to be honest, I would I use the word catharsis a lot because I really feel like it sparked, you know, this idea and this opening and really the floodgates open for all of these truths to come out. And thankfully, you know, Awakenings has been the space to hold these truths. So I, I'm finding that artists are responding in a way that's quite healing. Um, and we're very honored to be able to provide that space. Mm, great. Now, you mentioned, uh, and we mentioned that they're, they're the Toronto History Museums, and that's a group of 10 museums. Yeah, so that's right. We have in our collection of, of Toronto, uh, City of Toronto-owned museums, uh, 10 sites. And those 10 sites include the uh, Fort York National Historic Site, Colburn Lodge, Gibson House Museum, Mackenzie House, Market Gallery at St. Lawrence Market, Montgomery's Inn, Scarborough Museum, Spadina Museum, Todd Morden Mills, and the Zion Schoolhouse. And those those spaces, they are, you know, they see over 350,000 visitors a year outside of COVID. Mm. And, and we really truly do want to expand our reach and make these spaces feel more like community hubs for all Torontonians uh, because everybody's story lives in these spaces. And we really believe that we've got to expand our, our reach and, and, and broaden our impact in community. Mm. And, and what is the timeline on this process? Uh, you guys have had discussions. Uh, artists are going to be working on things, I'm sure, to, to bring to the audience uh, and for the museums. This gets started at what point in 2021, I, I understand? So basically, we've kicked off with a um, announcement from Mayor John Tory, uh, supported by Deputy Mayor uh, Michael Thompson. And really, the objective is for this work to continue through 2021 and for it to continue to evolve and for there to be behind the Awakenings uh, journey 
the 2.0. So for us, we are now at the beginning of a journey that we do not see an end to. Uh, we, we just see continual evolution, continual iteration, and continual impact and growth. Okay. And and how will it, um, maybe uh, Umbreen can answer this mm-hmm. in programming, how will the museums, uh, will they rotate these these presentations will they will they only take one at a time how how's that going to how's that going to roll out i think you know we're pretty flexible with the model but the idea is that all of our programming spans across the 10 sites mm. so ideally when we do one big thing you know we launch it at one site and it travels to the other site yeah. so that it reaches torontonians from all walks of life right. Um, and then it's pretty exciting because, you know, as we're working with artists, they have these 10 sites as their canvases to create work from. And for us, you know, the bigger the message, you know, the bigger the platform. And so we would love to do all 10 at the same time. So when you see these sort of large scale awakenings, you know, some which will be coming out in February, it will really take over all of the sites all at the same time. Right. And Cheryl, um, what, what now? It's in the hands of the of the museums. Um, what will the city's role be? The city's role will really be this idea of of making space. This mm-hmm. idea of of helping the public discover the stories of Toronto that they have never heard before. And, and but but really, this idea that it's, it's the, the city's role will be about making sure that we make it comfortable. And, and really welcoming for people who are from all diverse backgrounds of Toronto to, to come in and really feel that, you know, they can embrace stories that are told by Black, Indigenous, people of colour communities in their own voice. So I think, you know, the role of the city is to, to make space. Placemaking is really um, a, a conversation that begins with Indigenous Inuit Métis communities, but it, it needs to be embraced by all of us. And so... Our job as as the city of Toronto is to make sure that that philosophy is something that we bring to life through our actions as well as our words. And, and mm-hmm. do you see that uh, Mayor John Tory may now he made the announcement? Do you think that's the end of his role in this, or do you think he will be be uh, bringing more, uh, 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 shining more light on this as well as as, as time goes on? Yeah, I can, I can honestly say that Mayor John Tory has been a tremendous advocate and supporter of. You know, in the diverse community, uh, Black Indigenous community, Black and Indigenous artists and people of color artists. Um, and so I really believe that, you know, the mayor and the deputy mayor, Michael Thompson, will be standing with us as we evolve this pl- this platform and this work. And, and we're really, um, we're so fortunate to be supported by this level of leadership, uh, you know, in the city of Toronto. So I can I can say with absolute confidence that uh, Mayor John Tory will be standing with us and supporting us in the execution of this work. Um, and this is something that makes us very confident as we move forward to um, evolve this new philosophy at our sites. Okay. And going back to the artists and, and the works that they're going to be contributing and, and uh, producing for the museums, uh, of course, we're... We're in a state where we are still not out of COVID. Uh, vaccines are hopefully going to be distributed, uh, but uh, there's also this new strain that's been developed. Uh, we're, you know, in further lockdown. Uh, things are, are still, you know, uh, questionable in, in terms of the future. Um, so, is any of that going to, uh, you know, put a put any kind of of a restriction on on how this might proceed? Yes, yeah, so David, um, all of the Awakenings work and all of the work that we do 
in, in, the, in the past as well as in the future, it will be and has to be compliant with the Section 21 COVID-19 health and safety guidelines. So ultimately, everything we do has to fit the environment that we're working within. Um, and for that reason, the first part of our Awakenings launch is a virtual experience. It's largely online at toronto.ca slash museums. And we'll continue to kind of elevate this idea of using our social channels um, and using our Facebook, our Instagram, and our Twitter to start a conversation until we can get to a place where it's deemed safe by Toronto Public Health and the, the province to, to change the way that we engage with the public. But ultimately, the health and safety of Torontonians is our primary concern, and we will make sure that all of the programming that we do aligns with those guidelines. Okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With me here on the show is Cheryl Blackman. She is the Director of Museums and Heritage Services for the City of Toronto, along with Umberine Inayat, and she's the Programming Supervisor. And it's a pleasure to have them both on the show with us. And uh, now, Cheryl, you just mentioned the, the social channels, and I guess... You know, that is something that everyone is making much more use of these days. And I guess that, you know, although COVID has locked us down, I guess the other thing that that using social channels and using this online presence that everyone is now uh, turning to, it, it means that we're not just, you know, so much local anymore because now we're international. Whenever we go online, it's international. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we've seen that, we have to keep six feet apart, you know, that two meter distance, but the world still has that need, that um, that kind of important dialogue that has to happen. And the only way for it to happen right now in a meaningful way is with our social channels. So when, when you go to at Toronto History Museums, um, either on Facebook or Instagram or at TO History on Twitter, and you, you know, and you hashtag awakenings or you hashtag tell the full story, you're doing this to be able to build a conversation with people all over the world. And, you know, the, 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 the thing about COVID-19 has been that it has been in some ways this remarkable uh, equalizer that have, have, that's really allowing all of us to come together, that's allowing us to think about, you know, how we are the same rather than we how different we are. Mm. Um, and, of course, we understand that, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of colour communities are more deeply impacted by COVID-19, but there are still so many ways that we are really traveling in the same journey. So using those social channels to connect ourselves is more critical than ever. Mm-hmm. Amberine, in terms of the the museums and, and uh, their presence, was there any thought given to, um, you know, the utilization of of the online presence for this? I know it's virtual for sure, but but did you think about the, the idea that, it, hey, we're not just talking to Toronto anymore? Yeah, I mean, you know, Cheryl knows that I'm always interested in the global dialogue. I feel like the online platform is a way uh, to go and that we can't ever turn back from. Mm. In a way, you know, as Cheryl mentioned, COVID uh, did revolutionize how the city engages with technology, which I'm super excited about. And, you know, for me, I think it's really important to create really strong images, you know, images that make a statement, images that are compelling, 
compelling and images that you can't unsee. So for us, you know, we are calling these artistic interventions because when we're inviting artists into these sites to create these works, the act in itself, you know, is a political statement. And the image that comes from that is something that can be shared worldwide. So in a way, you know, it's really done us a service because we've been able to connect with people all around the world. You know, we have an AR artwork that's coming out and it's all about, you know, taking a stand and really it's about, you know, how people democratize the use of art where it's for everybody. And we're really excited about that. So it's taken down a lot of barriers. It's been able to spread the message about awakenings and it's been able to bring our sites to life in a way that I don't think we've ever done before, you know, at the city in the history that I've been there. Mm. Yeah, as as uh, the two of you have mentioned, uh, and Cheryl, you just mentioned about the uh, the website, the Toronto.ca slash museums, and uh, also Awakenings. Um, you also mentioned the, the other social platforms. Do, you've got Twitter, you've got Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, um, all of those, all of those things. Are they all accessible? If you go to say uh, Toronto.ca slash museums, will will you be able to connect to all of those things or what people might be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. If if you go to Toronto.ca slash museums, all of our social platforms are available from that from our from any of our landing pages. So folks should feel free to jump onto that website and to uh, join the conversation. We really do want um, you know our, mm-hmm. our our users to get connected, to be speaking with us, but more importantly, to be sharing with each other. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you know whether it's talking about awakenings or looking at the fine arts. Um, an artifact collection which is online for the first time with 150,000 artifacts and you know 3,000 works of fine art um, or whether it's you know going to the Toronto History Museum shop as a result of wanting to mm. find out more about particular subjects their their content is there for the first time ever and we really want folks to take a deep dive with us and to more importantly uh, be part of a conversation that that discussion is really what we're aiming for right mm-hmm. Ambrine did you want to add something to that Oh, I was just going to say those comments give me life. <laughs> well, when I when I look at the YouTube comments, you know, when I look at the comments on Instagram, honestly, it just feels like this is why we're doing what we're doing. Hmm. You know, we're seeing a lot of uh, really positive uh, responses, a lot of thank yous, even, you know, I think being able to have BIPOC people be presented in this way uh, with such reverence. I think is really doing a public service. And when I see those comments, it just reminds me of, you know, this is why we do what we do. So yes, as Cheryl said, please uh, feel free to connect with us and tell us how, how they make you feel and how, you know, if, there, if it sparked any type of interest or any other topics, because we're here and we're ready to learn from our public and respond and create content that speaks to Torontonians and people worldwide. Now, one of the things that was mentioned earlier is that the idea behind Awakenings and the task force that was created, as we mentioned off the top of the show, the principles of anti-oppression, anti-colonialism, sustainability, advocacy, and storytelling uh, is is what uh, was formed to develop uh, and these projects. Will the stories and will the the presentations, uh, will they be Showing that side, in other words, what I'm saying is, will the story, are the stories going to um, be sure that, that they present that, that kind of, uh, that history, you know, n- not get sidelined, I guess what I'm saying, to make sure that they're giving the message that you guys wanted to present? 
Yeah, I think it, that's definitely the case. Uh, part of what we've done with the Toronto History Museums is, is we've, take, we've taken some time to develop a new vision, a new mission. We've created a programming narrative, and it really is uh, centered on this idea of you know, sharing stories of the past, the present, and the future, but embracing the reality that history is not uh, something that should be sanitized. And as a result of that, you know, ultimately, uh, when when we look at the histories of, of Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities, we understand that some of that history is prickly. Uh, some of it is is bitter. Some of it makes you laugh and some of it makes you lament. And that's something that we are going to work with our partners to make sure that we're, you know, truly respecting and, and doing justice to those stories. And that, that kind of leads me to one of the other great things that has happened in this very challenging year in that we've created a series of advisory councils to help us with our programming lens. And we've developed a, uh, a Indigenous advisory council uh, supported by Councillor Irma Farrell from the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Mm. Uh, we, we also have an advisory council which is uh, dedicated to inclusion, diversity, equity and accessibility. And those councils were launched in this year because we felt that, you know, we couldn't just speak about change. We had to be about change. And mm -hmm. these, these these amazing colleagues and citizens are going to help us to really be true to the voices of community. Okay. Uh, you just mentioned a few things about history, about, you know, how it could be prickly. There's there's some things that, that are not pleasant about the past. Um Umbreen, you also mentioned that the artists, some of them were surprised um, that the city was having the courage to go forward with this. And I want to tie those two things together because some of that history may perhaps point to Toronto or may point to more specific things uh, as the stories come out. Uh, and is this, you know, that that may be unpleasant for the city to to uh, um, uh, to to look at as well. And I guess the city is going to embrace that. Absolutely. And to be honest, we encouraged it. So we spent the last six months really uh, looking at things with an anti-colonial lens. So we looked at all of our scripts, you know, when people go into the museums, what stories are they being told? We dug deep into the history of each site and we created, you know, what we're calling a series of truths. And these are anti-colonial truths that we presented to the artists we were working with saying, you know, we know, you know, this is what we know as of right now. We're also open to bringing forth any other stories that you may want to share that come from an anti-colonial lens. And yeah, of course, there is going to be discomfort, but this is why we're saying, you know, we need to hold space for discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this year has been shined a huge light on us needing to be okay with discomfort, you know, especially with, you know, social unrest that's been happening around the world yep. with George Floyd and yep. many others, you know, it's time, it's time for us to sit with that. And, uh, you know, we had this one film called Acknowledgement by John Elliott that we're all super proud of, you know, he's a Mohawk filmmaker and he's talking about, uh, you know, what, what do we acknowledge? And he talks about the Toronto Purchase. He talks about, you know, how it's a faulty agreement. He talks about a murder of an indigenous chief at Cherry Beach. And, you know, he said throughout the, they were out the filming that, you know, they all felt that it was, um, you know, it, it was cathartic in the sense that they were able to do so and present this work. And, you know, we embrace that and we all sit and continuously learn about what went wrong so we can hold space for that truth and hopefully, you know, make positive changes. But we didn't want to just say, OK, let's just jump ahead and move on you know, to a better new world. We wanted to hold space for that pain, that grief, um, that, as Cheryl mentioned, that lament, 
that bitter and that's the only way that us as a society can grow. Cheryl and I are actually social workers. It's very important for us to really, um, you know, think about things from a social work lens. And sometimes you need to sit in that discomfort and we're okay with that. Mm, if it's right. going to lead to positivity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. And let's hope that uh, all of the, those things come to pass. And we'll have to leave it there. But it's been a real pleasure speaking with both of you today. And we really want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and, and share us uh, with this information. Thanks so thank much, David, so for much. having us here today. We really appreciate the opportunity to speak to the audience. And we thank Element FM for partnering with us to help us to share the, the good news. Our thank pleasure. So thank you both for, for uh, telling us about this. And uh, they are the voices of Cheryl Blackman. That's the Director of Museums and uh, Heritage Services at the City of Toronto, along with Umberine Inayet, and she's the Programming Supervisor, telling us about the Toronto History Museum's Awakenings program that has been launched. Look for that online. And if you go to toronto.ca slash museums, you can uh, find out more about that. Uh, and uh, don't forget, you can also uh, go to all the their, uh, their social pro- programs, uh, online programs, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, all of those social handles that you can go and find out more uh, from uh, TO History as well and museums. That's this part of the show. I'm your host, David Moses. Thanks for listening to us. But hey, don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to have uh, here on the show with us Safiya Hussein, and she is a PhD candidate in communications and culture at Ryerson University, uh, who also happens to be in the state of Florida at the moment, and uh, so she's doing her uh, her PhD remotely. And hey, that's what this COVID nineteen thing has done for many of us. Uh, allowed us to uh, do things remotely from many different places. Uh, you know, we were talking about this, uh, Sophia, to uh, some other people earlier, and I heard about uh, how a lot of these great uh, travel destinations. Um, have opened up their borders for uh, working visas to last longer now so that people can actually work uh, in Bahamas for six, eight months without having to leave and renew their their uh, their, their um, uh, application and, and, and their visas so that they can stay there and just work through this time. What a great opportunity that is. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you with us here on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm actually not going to be here for six months, but um, <laughs> thanks for, for mentioning that. Well, I know I was just throwing that out there because I was just thinking how, how what a great opportunity that would be, uh, especially even if you're in, you know, lockdown situation, if you're, yeah. you know, because our weather hasn't been the greatest in, in Canada. Uh, oh, yeah. It's not really feeling much like winter these days. Hasn't been a whole lot of snow on the ground, but um Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. So we'll get back to the the topic at hand because you're here to talk to us about something very interesting, which is Marvel's first on-screen Muslim superhero. 
Yes, yes. Um, uh, Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel. Um, uh, Marvel actually just dropped um, the official announcement that there is a, it's a Canadian teen actress, um, Iman Vellani, who mm-hmm. will be um, taking up the role of Miss Marvel for Disney Plus. So it's an exciting time to be talking about her. Now, uh, Ms. Marvel has, can you give us some background on this character at all? Um, yeah, I mean, Ms. Marvel is um, a character that's been part of Marvel for, for many decades. Um, she is um, uh, traditionally known to be who we know as Captain Marvel now, Carol Danvers, but there have been other characters that have portrayed Miss um, Marvel. Um, or I should say taken up the Miss Marvel mantle. But um, for a very long time, she was Carol Danvers. And then sometime in 2014, really 2013, in one of the Captain Marvel um, comics, uh, she um, we met Kamala Khan. And then in 2014, Kamala Khan debuted in the Miss Marvel series. And um, Carol Danvers had handed her the Miss Marvel mantle. And the reason why this was so big and so special was because um, Kamala is a Pakistani-American. So this was the first time a Muslim um, took up um, the Miss Marvel mantle. And she's, she's just, um, the Miss Marvel series has been a, a big success um, for comic books. Uh, before she was even mentioned um, that she'd be on screen, um, her first issue had sold um, over half a million copies. It's um, it's Marvel's um, largest digital comic bookseller of all time. Mm. The first issue, um, you know, it's won a Hugo. Um, it's just very, very popular with comic book audiences. So after a while, as Kevin Feige, the president of Marvel, was saying, um, you know, with this kind of success and you know, a character resonating with audiences as well. Um, people just want to know when are you going to bring Miss Marvel on screen. So here she's she's going to be debuting. I think I can't remember exactly when they said it would be, but it would probably be around I think early 2022. In her own TV series on Disney. Yeah, her own TV series in Disney Plus. That is pretty cool. But uh, are are there any concerns around this? I mean, it's wonderful to hear that. But mm-hmm. there, there's also perhaps the, the possibility that this could lead to um, maybe some some stereotyping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wrote about that um, in my piece in the conversation. Yeah. So you know, I mean, her iterations. It's it's been quite interesting to see how she's written from you know through different writers, right? Yep. So. Um, you know, she she's fine in her own series when she was with um, Muslim writers like the white Muslim convert G. Willa Wilson, who's just a very talented writer. Um, and she was being written for a while by Saladin Ahmed, who is a an Arab-American writer who, I mean, he was okay, but I had some issues with how he had, had written her. But um, the second that she was written by a white male non-Muslim writer, Mark Wade, in a different series, um, The Champions, which is kind of like a Teenage Avengers series. And that's also, too, debuting in um, in uh, Disney Plus, uh, Teenage Teen Adve- Avengers. Um, she, I was pretty disappointed because she kind of regurgitated 
the stereotypes um, of, um, or at least the series itself, one issue, had regurgitated very negative stereotypes about Muslims. Um, you know, she all of a sudden was um, going off to a fictional South Asian Muslim country to rescue Muslim women um, from these violent, savage um, Muslim men who were just reduced to stock villains that you would see from like True Lies mm-hmm. or so many, so many American um, movies right now. Um, and it really seemed like she was kind of used as like a proxy for white men saving brown women from brown men, um, to quote um, Guy mm-hmm. Trees Vivek. Um, so, you know, it just, it just ended up regurgitating some negative stereotypes of, um, Muslim men and Muslim women. That's, that's really it. And she kind of seemed to be, um, um, a, um, a symbol for reifying American exceptionalism. So that to me at least seemed a bit troublesome. Right. But on the other side of that, this opens up an opportunity to challenge stereotypes as well, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would have to say that the series on on its own has done a lot to challenge stereotypes. Um, you know, just just there's so much um, in the series. Uh, Muslim representation is pretty much normalized. Um, you see a lot of her South Asian Muslim culture. You see the family going to mosque. Um, you see um, you see them celebrating Eid. And it, it there's no like scary or stereotypical way in which they celebrate, um, you know, in which, in which they observe their practices. It doesn't seem extreme in any way. Um, her sister-in-law is an African-American Muslim woman. So we saw that, you know, uh, black representation, uh, black Muslim representation as well. We don't really see that as much in pop culture. So it's, it's definitely broken stereotypes, the series itself. It's the earlier, um, volumes did a lot, um, to challenge stereotypes, I think. Mm. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, this was the largest selling? Uh, yes. The first issue yeah. um, had sold, um, as I, I mentioned earlier, um, had sold, um, it's it's Marvel's um, highest selling digital comic of all time. Yeah, that's, so. wow. It, the fact that that, ha- that show showed itself to be able to do that do you think it influenced their desire to move this character forward? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it. You know, the the series itself is is very popular. It wasn't just the first issue. You know, um, um, even up till today, like um, in in September, the first volume was in the top five most sold um, comics for September 2020, and that that volume came out in like 2014. And so. Um, uh, she's so popular with with fans that, of course, you know they wanted to see her on screen. So, so that's that's why I think they moved her. A lot of people were anticipating her to be on screen. Mm. It it would make sense to put her out of all the new characters that we've seen in comic books. Is she's the one? At least at superhero comic books, she's the one we should have seen first. Mm. What about characters, uh, Muslim characters, pre and post nine eleven? Um, pre nine eleven, um, they were like just um, they just re- they were almost buffoonish. Like you know, I mean, I I, I don't know if any one of us are uh, old enough to remember True Lies, as I'd mentioned in um, in in my article. They were just buffoonish. They were just these evil terrorist savages. 
Um, and, and that was just it. And then post 9-11, we, we started to see a lot more Muslim representation in popular culture just in general. And um, most of them seemed like they were a little bit more complex and more humanized, but they regurgitated stereotypes in a more um, crafty way. So the, the um, American scholar, Evelyn Al-Sultani, um, had, had a term for it, simplified complex representation, mm. where, you know, where we saw a slight bit of complexity, um, you know, a slight bit of humanizing moments, tokenized humanized moments um, as to why they were the, the way they were. But they were mostly just regurgitating stereotypes. And I mean, personally, as a Muslim, I find it really annoying that every conversation that happens around Muslims is whether or not they're, um, they're extreme or there's a problem with Islam and extremism or, or, you know, they're not like that, right? Where there's so much more um, diversity in the Islamic world. There's so much more going on um, in, in Muslim communities that are not only about, not really only about, um, you know, fundamentalism, you know, I, mm. it's 24, 23% of the world's population. So, you know, mm. you can't expect that, you know, everyone or most are, are fundamentalists, right? Mm. You're yeah. listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is, is Safia Hossein, and she is a PhD candidate in communication and culture at Ryerson University. We're talking about her article that she wrote in The Conversation, and uh, it's about uh, uh, Muslim characters and specifically the first uh, Marvel uh, uh, on-screen Muslim superhero, uh, Kamala Khan and uh, Ms. Marvel, the alter ego. And so it's a pleasure to have her on the show to talk about this. You know, you, you just phrased a coin there that, that you, you referenced, and that was simplified complex behavior. And, and I, I'm in, I find it interesting that that started to come out after 9-11. Why do you think there was a desire to show more complexity of the character after 9-11? Um, I, I think that, you know, people were just, um, um, it, like, intrigued by Muslim representation. Mm. Um, and so people wanted to see more. And so Miss um, Marvel is by no means the first Muslim superhero. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I think we, as I've mentioned, um, post 9-11, um, you know, there were quite a few Muslim superheroes. They were mostly tokenized. Um, you know, but, but people were just, um, were intrigued by, to see, um, Muslims in popular culture more. And so, you know, because everyone, because the West just in general were, um, consumed with this war on terror, uh, I think comic books just wanted to try to, to capitalize on Muslim representation mm -hmm. and, um, wanted to see how could we use, um, Muslim representation in a way that um, that spoke to um, this this um, war on terror, this clash of civilizations that the media was trying to perpetuate, but it's I mean, the clash of civilization itself is is a racist concept, right? Mm. Um, so I think it was 
it was just really the the comic book industry trying to sensationalize um, Muslim representation and capitalize on on everybody's intrigue over Muslims. Right. You mentioned the film uh, True Lies. I remember seeing that film, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it, it had a lot of uh, it was a, a comedy of sorts. But mm-hmm. I, I do remember the the Muslim stereotypes that you refer to as, as the terrorists in this film, and. Mm-hmm. I I remember feeling almost an awkwardness watching that because it did feel that way to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It, it did. It was, um, I mean, you know, I think, um, pre nine 11 and even up till today, we do see negative stereotypes of just many groups of people, um, reinforced repeatedly, um, over and over, sometimes in more crafty ways than other times. Um, but it is, it was very discomforting. Uh, first of all, um, you know, there's a stereotype that, um, that most Muslims are Middle Eastern or Arab, and mm-hmm. that only that doesn't account for a large percentage of the Islamic world at all. Um, the Middle East makes up about 20% of, um, of the Islamic world, and it encompasses different groups of people, Arabs, Persians, and Kurds. Um, but, but it's just unfortunate because um, when we do see representation it's um, usually Middle Eastern representation and it's negative representation. Right. So it's orientalized as well, too. So, you know, mostly we just see them as terrorists mm-hmm. or oppressed women um, when when that's I, anyone who's um, interfaced or interacted with um, different groups of Muslims would know that that's that's not common. Right. So. The opportunity, and it sounds like, of course, and I, I, speaking of stereotypes and those things, I think of how the film industry has treated other characters over time as well. Yes, and and yes. it seems to be very much the same. You know, there's mm-hmm. always this, this when they, they, they start to show uh, either superiority or characters that need to be rescued uh, by mm-hmm. the uh, Western way, the, you know, the heroes, et cetera, et cetera. And... Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this need for continued education and for a need to push back to to fight against these stereotypes. Everyone seems to ha- have to do that in order to uh, finally get some representation that truly feels a little more authentic for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that that actually has to do with, um, more with who is behind the scenes mm. creating and producing um, this, um, these various types of um, media, whether it's film, whether it's comics, whether it's TV, um, I think that it has to do a lot with who's behind the scenes and um, who's signing off on, on representation. And I think it's actually just a lot of laziness that we see um, um, people just thinking that, okay, well, we need to just stick to what we're familiar with, what we know. Because um, because that's what audiences want to see. So right. I personally feel we're probably um, shifting a little bit. Um, you know, we we saw the Black Panther film, mm-hmm. we saw um, the Crazy Rich Asians film, and again, there there were people who um, in those communities who did have um, um, their own individual issues with um with those films right kimberly crenshaw had written um a a very interesting facebook post about black panther which is a post um a film that i really enjoyed um except for one scene in black panther 
um, that that I think had to do with um, Muslim representation and didn't seem to be positive. But um, but generally speaking, we've we started to see films that center people of color um, and the people behind the scenes as well too who are creating these films or spearheading these films um, are are people of color. You know, Miss Marvel, the series is being um, the showrunner is a Pakistani British. Uh, uh, writer and comedian Abisha K. Ali. Mm. So I do, I do feel that we're starting to see glimpses of hope. Um, you know, I, I the Miss Marvel series in and of itself, the editor is a Pakistani American, um, and so you know we're you know the the series itself has done a lot to, like I said, shatter stereotypes and um, normalize Muslim representation. So I think that we will start to see more um more nuanced representation just overall i'm hoping i mean have you even you know watched some of the netflix films because um you know some of them as well too have actually included more people of color as well Mm. right yeah let's hope that that certainly is happening uh, right across the board and and that we we do get to see true and better authentic representation of characters and and cultures uh, right across Mm -hmm. the board as you mentioned Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, before we uh, go back to to this a little bit, I, I would like to find out a little bit more about yourself, if you don't mind. As you you are, as you mentioned, uh, you're a PhD candidate in communication and culture. What drew you to that? What what, what attracted you to get into that? Um, I well, when I decided to go back to school to do my PhD, I was um, I mean, I over I'm a big pop culture aficionado. Um, so I consume pop culture a lot and I just seen post 9-11 that there was so much representation of Muslims and they were mostly negative. And I remember when I was writing up my um, my research statement, I just decided I was like, you know, what is it that I want to look at? And um, I just wanted to look at um, um, representations that challenged uh, Muslims as um, negative um, violent, oppressed people. Mm. Um, I just wanted to see what challenged negative stereotypes of Muslims. And so I, I knew I'd heard about Miss Marvel because when she had debuted, um, um, you know, there's so much uh, media hype about her. And so I started reading up more on her and I started reading comics. And um, I used to read comics when I was younger, but then I stopped reading it when I was older. And um, and I was pretty fascinated um, by just Muslim superheroes overall. I read um, other um, other like comics with um, with uh, Muslim superheroes as well. And I just decided that this was what I wanted to look at because this was strange. This was um, you know we always think of Muslims as um, othered, diff- you know, othered to Western civilization, mm-hmm. other to North North American culture, mm-hmm. and um, superheroes are supposed to be more like. Uh, patriotic symbols. So mm. I, I decided right then and there that I would I would look at this and see if they did in fact um, cha- challenge negative um, uh, stereotypes of Muslims. And the only thing I will say about Muslim super- superheroes and in um, academia in general, most scholarship tries to position Muslim superheroes as some kind of um, uh, weapon against Islamophobia, which and and also mm. to tries to make it look as though we'll see you know. There is this um, this good representation out there, so that must mean that as a culture we're okay. 
Um, but the only thing that I will say is that it's a complicated representation. So it's not positive or negative. It's just, it's complicated. It's more (laughs) complex than that. Right. So as you, from what you were just saying there, what, what bothers you about the way they are represented right now? And what do you feel good about? Um, well, like I said, there are quite a few of them. There's, um, you know, Soraya Kadir, who is an X-Men, who is just a very ori- orientalized um, um, representation. And so so she tends to, um, um, you know, that character, for instance, tends to craftily regurgitate stereotypes of Muslims in a negative way. But again, it's a simplified, complex representation mm. because she's supposed to be fighting in our interests. So, um, you know, as I, as I said in my article, um, what kind of bothers me is this idea that, okay, they're special. They're, the, you know, they're an example of Western exceptionalism. They, they um, reify Western exceptionalism as in like if they redeem themselves and they take up our cultures and our backgrounds or they're fighting in our interests then that must mean that they're good, right? You know, whereas that doesn't actually, we need to look at political geopolitics a little bit more deeply than that. Um, so, um, you know, I think like like that's the complex part that um, it, what really bothers me, I should say, is um, somebody like Mark Wade's representation, that a, a, a writer can go and take this character and, and have them... Um, uh, perpetuate negative stereotypes overall, but in a crafty way. But then at the same time, what I love about um, Muslim superheroes is that, and like Miss Marvel, is that we also too get to see when they're written by the right person, we get to see um, their culture in much in such a nuanced way, and they normalize Muslim representation in um, North American societies. So I guess it really depends on the writer. Right. Yes. Um, you know, as you were talking there and, and, and just talking about some of the characters, some of these characters are, are of course, in uh, films or stories that are bigger than about themselves. They're not the main characters, in other words. They're the secondary mm-hmm. stories or, or those kind of things. So do mm-hmm. you think that, that with the new series that, that's focusing on, you know, Miss Marvel as a main character and, and Disney Plus is going to come out with, do you think that 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 because it will be a main character, it will be allowed to flesh out more of the character, more sides, and have a more fuller, rounded uh, uh, representation of the culture, the person, uh, as that moves forward and gets into the the ongoings of of the character. Absolutely, absolutely. Because this um, the series is um, based off of the comic book series, mm. so we will definitely. I'm I'm very excited for the series because we will definitely see um, um, uh, so much of the culture and her religious practices. We will see um, a young Muslim teenage girl. Going through, um, going through all the teenage angst and all all the things that every millennial can mm. relate to. Very, you know, anyone who's gone gone through teenage um, mm-hmm. teenagehood can relate to. Is trying to fit in with her peers and you know going through all these different emotions as well. And then we'll also to see her practicing. We'll see her going to the mosque. We'll see her celebrating Eid. Mm. We'll see. Um, we'll see some um, her family. 
um, speaking Urdu to her and, you know, back and forth. Most likely, I, I think we'll see the Urdu as well. Um, we will we will definitely get to see a lot of nuanced representation because she, her family and her are the center of the series. So really, we've not ever seen, I think, anything like this um, for a TV series. Mm-hmm. We've not ever seen South Asian Muslim representation or just Muslim representation, period, um, centered in a TV series um, here in um, in uh, North America. I don't think we've we've ever really seen that. Right. So it sounds like then there's an opportunity that aside from entertainment uh, and and introducing us to the, this character, uh, we're going to get an opportunity to also be educated. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I'm not an education scholar. I'm a communication scholar, <laughs> but. Um, but the, the scholar, um, this, both scholars, um, uh, Shanila S. Kojamulji and Alyssa D. Nicolini had written an article about Miss Marvel and, um, you know, the portrayal of the men in the Miss Marvel series. And they, they said that, you know, she's kind of like a representation of something called public pedagogy. So pedagogy is, um, really education at, at the end, of, just just on a, a very um, uh, simplified term. It's mm. really about education. So um, I would say from a public perspective, yes, she will stand to educate um, most of um, the general population who's watching this. Um, this series will educate them about um, Muslim representation more. And it'll also to show them a, a normalized, nuanced representation as well. Um, that they're not terrorists, that they're not oppressed, that they're not, you know, backwards, quote unquote. Um, they're they're actually just a family like every other North American families, which, um, in and of them, in and of itself, will probably rankle Islamophobes overall. Like, um, you know, I, I, there has been criticism of the series because Islamophobes don't don't want to see Muslim representation normalized, right? Mm-hmm. So. So um, I, I'm actually interested in seeing the back if there will be a backlash and mm. how that will manifest. Right, right. All good points. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sophia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Fascinating topic and a great article that you wrote in the conversation about this Marvel's first on-screen Muslim superhero, Kamala Khan, mm-hmm. Ms. Marvel's alter ego. And uh, as you say, Disney Plus bringing that to the screen uh, sometime in 2021, 2022. Yeah, 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 sometime late 2021, 20, early 2022. I, I think that the announcement made it look like it would be early 2022. But, um, I mean, this year is the COVID year, right? So we don't really know. And the fact yeah. that, uh, that we have a, a Canadian teen uh, playing the part, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. That's really interesting. That's very cool. I think we we need to um, really at one point look at how Toronto has been producing um, all of these diverse actors. Uh, you know, it seems as though Hollywood comes to Toronto to um, find actors that are good quality um, and also to people of color. So, you know, I'm I'm excited to see Iman. She's she will act very well. I'm sure mm. she will act very well. As she had to go through this process and had to passed the Kevin Feige test. So he's the president of, his, of um, Marvel Studios, and he seems to, uh, to to value good acting, as we could see from Brie Larson, who's an Academy Award winner. 
um, you know, I think I think she will do very well. So it's you know, this will be a plus for Canadians to see. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm not surprised to see them uh, turning to Canada to find uh, great actors in in so many areas. Maybe it has something to do with our uh, multicultural approach to uh, to our existence in in Canada that might mm-hmm. just make our approach. Uh, you know, look at the sense of humor our Canadian comics are, are have done so well, also in in the United mm-hmm. States and in the film industry as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think there's a lesson to to learn from this multicultural representation and this acceptance. Well, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time mm-hmm. uh, to join us on the show, and and uh, I want to wish you all the best in the future. And uh, and and you know, thanks again. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Okay, take care. Bye bye. It's been my pleasure having uh, Sophia Hussein on the show. She's a PhD candidate in communications and culture at Ryerson University, but she's uh, remotely dealing with that at the moment as she is in the state of Florida uh, uh, visiting with her family down there. We've been talking to her about her article that she wrote in The Conversation. You can check it out there as well, and it's called uh, Marvel's First On-Screen Muslim Superhero Khan. Miss Marvel's Alter Ego Inspires Big Hopes. It was uh, issued on November the 30th. And that is this part of the show. We want to thank you for uh, listening, as we do each and every day. We like to have you here on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will see you here again tomorrow. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.